0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Carpe Consensus, a new podcast from Coindesk. My name is Ben Schiller. I am the head of Consensus Magazine here at Coindesk. And joining me today are two co-hosts, the great Danny Nelson, who is Deputy News Editor here at Coindesk. Hello. And Cam Thompson, who is a redoubtable Web3 reporter. Hi, guys. Hi. How are we doing today? Doing well. Getting back to work. Yep. Good, good. So what is Carpe Consensus? It is a new show where we're going to cover some of the big picture themes coming out of the crypto Web3 industry. And this feeds into our own Consensus Festival which takes place every year in Austin, Texas, and will take place at the end of uh, April this year, and uh, we're very excited about that. So we're going to be having some of the special guests that are going to be appearing at Consensus will be on the show. We'll review what they will be talking about at the festival and getting their insights into what's happening in the industry that we all care about, and we'll have some news updates and some insights from some of the great reporters and editors at Coindesk. Today we're going to be talking about some of the hottest news in the crypto industry which continues to be dominated by the fallout from the collapse of FTX and now uh, the collapse also into bankruptcy or chapter 11 bankruptcy of BlockFi which was once a great fabled name in this industry and is, is next on the chopping block. And we'll also talk about some of the journalistic coverage of FTX, which is very illuminating as to how different journalists and media organizations think about crypto and want to impact the industry. And then we'll have a fun segment at the end that Cameron's going to be leading, which is called Cam's Corner. Okay, so now we're going to talk about one of the biggest scandals in crypto history. And that, of course, is FTX and a, really a massive exchange that went belly up recently. And uh, Danny, what do you think about this? This is uh, just feels very different from previous scandals that we've had this year. But FTX is really a, a much bigger company, much more high profile company. This guy, SBF, was in Washington. He was a, a big player. What makes this scandal different, do you think?
2: Well, I think just to brag for a moment, we killed the king here at Coindesk. We broke the first story that exposed some funky business on the balance sheet, and that started a run that ultimately led to FTX of all companies going bankrupt. So that's what's really sticking out to me right now.
1: Yeah, that was an amazing scoop by our very own Ian Allison. He dug into the Alameda balance sheet and found a lot of dodgy tokens on there that turned out to be worthless. Uh, And that was really the basis or the Originating factor in this collapse. So, hats off to him and hats off to Coindesk. It was an amazing experience. Cam, what's your take on this?
3: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at the fact that so many people trusted Sam. And, like you said, being a high profile company, you know, we had the FTX arena, we had a lot of big players. Steph Curry had an NFT collection, Coachella had an NFT collection, along with FTX US's NFT platform. There was so much at stake in this empire, and watching it crumble has huge implications not only for the exchange industry, but the actual cryptocurrencies themselves.
2: So where were you guys when you found out that everything was different? Because I'll tell you where I was. I was landing at Philadelphia International Airport. I got a text from my friend Sam Kessler, who works here at Coindesk. He said, Danny, where are you? The world is ending. I had no idea. I was in the air for eight hours. And so now you have me just cursing at passport control because crypto has just turned on its head. And that was that moment that's going to stick with me. So where were you guys when you found out that everything was different?
3: Oh my gosh. So I was actually in LA. So I was three hours behind. So around 11 a.m. Eastern is what happened. So 8 a.m. Pacific in Los Angeles, I had been up for about three hours, just kind of catching up on everything FTX related, not entirely sure it was happening. And I went downstairs to get a cup of coffee and I remember just looking at my phone like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Absolutely insane.
1: Well, I, I guess I was reading the, the original story that Ian Allison wrote. I think it was the previous Thursday or Friday that we published it. And uh, I thought at the time it was something was going to happen. That it was going to be a big deal. But I had no idea it was going to you know, lead to collapse and, and, and actually for the whole company to be basically drained of billions and billions of dollars. So. Uh, it was just an endless, shocking moment, and I think we've been through a lot of these kind of scandals before. But the, the kind of the the fall from grace was so precipitous in this case; it was just unbelievable. You know, he went from a hero to a zero in in no time at all. It truly was Icarus flying straight into
2: the sun and then burning to a crisp and falling back to earth as a crisp.
1: So, Danny, uh, you're head of news here at CoinDesk. What's been uh, percolating up to the newsroom this week? Well, this week, the big story has been finally the fall of BlockFi,
2: a once vaunted crypto lending platform that really was at the top of the industry, which with its billion, multi-billion dollar valuations and its promise that you could safely park your Bitcoin with them and earn some yield. And for a while now, we've all expected them to file for bankruptcy. And this week they have. They went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection after failing to honor withdrawals. They, they had paused withdrawals in the wake of the FTX collapse. And this really is the conclusion of a story in which BlockFi had struggled, went to FTX, went before FTX's fall, hat in hand, asking for a bailout, got the money it needed. And now it owes FTX and a whole lot of other people hundreds of millions of dollars because it can't honor its debts, and it's looking to the court for protection. So this really is just the latest example of a crypto company that's fallen in a really bloody 2022. And Cam, I'll throw it over to you. What are your thoughts on BlockFi's collapse?
3: Well, I think it's really interesting to look at you know, where BlockFi was several months ago. I mean, it was one of the companies that was a part of SPF Suite of being the JP Morgan of crypto. And now that it's weeks out from the initial start of the contagion, I think that we definitely expected this, but it's interesting. And I think that we'll probably see more companies follow.
1: Yeah, so I think the big question here is whether this is symptomatic of the crypto industry being in trouble generally, or whether this is to do with macro conditions in the economy, or whether it's something more directly related to the actual business model that BlockFi has or had. Because obviously, its big competitor, Celsius, also went belly up this year as as well. So I think some people will say this is symptomatic of contagion and problems wider in crypto. And some people will say this proves that crypto lending is a bad idea to start with. And I think that that debate will uh, play out over the next few weeks.
2: Yeah, I think you can look at the macro environment of rising rates as sort of the bedrock upon which everything else sits. Like We've seen Terra cause the big blowout this year. But really, with the Fed raising interest rates, that's created an environment where people are looking at risk assets more critically, and that might itself contribute to the outflow of capital and all the blobs that we've seen this year.
1: And it's also interesting, I think, in the context of Bitcoin, because I think there's some hardcore Bitcoin people who have always thought about Bitcoin as being enough in itself, i.e. we don't need... Companies to come along and build products on top of Bitcoin, like uh, Celsius and, and BlockFi have done, and I think there'll be a hankering amongst the sort of hardcore Bitcoin community to go back to what Bitcoin is good at, which is simply as a store of value rather than as a basis for a financial system.
3: Yeah. To go off of what Ben just said, a couple of weeks ago I was at Pacific Bitcoin, which was a conference in LA, and it happened two days after Binance backed out on its deal to purchase FTX. So really at the beginning of this explosion of contagion. And a lot of people there were pretty relaxed, pretty relaxed about FTX, pretty relaxed about what impacts might come in the following weeks. And it just goes back to this sentiment that people are looking to Bitcoin as a store of value, as this type of currency in itself, rather than something to be worried about in this greater suite of crypto products.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing about this uh, all these collapsing companies is there as a whole chorus of people who are saying, I told you so from various points of view. And one of those groups is definitely the Bitcoin community, which always saw Bitcoin as a pure asset that didn't need embellishing, didn't need a whole industry of charlatans and scam artists and bullshitters coming along to build products and companies on top of it. You know, it was just like, buy your Bitcoin, keep your Bitcoin and celebrate your Bitcoin. You know, they do have a moment here where they can
2: celebrate their uh, alleged victory, but it's a bit delusional of them to think that they could just have this wonderful peer-to-peer money and no one else is going to do anything with it. In a purely free world, anyone can do with anything what they want. And so you're going to have companies that build themselves up around Bitcoin, and they might not be copacetic with the OGs, if you will, but the OGs are just going to have to tolerate that not everyone can have their opinions.
3: I mean, I think it definitely points back to the origins of Bitcoin and outlined in the white paper, the fact that, you know, 2008, seeing the impacts of the financial crisis and trusting a centralized entity and, you know, having just Bitcoin as itself where it's peer to peer, you know, building all of these products around it that are lenders and borrowers sort of, in a way, goes against that initial ethos that Bitcoin was built upon. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but have at it.
1: (laughs) I mean, I disagree with that, because I think you have to get away from the purity of Bitcoin in order to build this industry. And if we don't have this wider industry, then we don't have very much. So I think, you know, the people that want to claim that crypto is done because of the collapse of FTX or the collapse of BlockFi are, are massively overstating the case, because there's still a huge amount of additional and bigger products out there.
2: Yeah. And a final thought, I think, on that FTX and BlockFi. I mean, we have two companies here that are now in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They're also, in a way, very different. If we look at what's caused FTX's collapse, it appears to be fraudulent behavior, or at the very least, lying to its customers. BlockFi was just a business that had too much risk and got the business end of that risk. So we have to understand that not every failed business failed for the same reasons, but a lot of them are interconnected, as you see with FTX and BlockFi.
1: Yep. I think that's a great point Danny and I think uh, in, in all these failures there's a tendency amongst people to see everything is the same and, and, and it all being interconnected and there's definitely contagion going around but we should remember that these companies are vastly different cases and there might be different reasons at work here before we kind of look for trends too much uh, and, and patterns and everything let's remember that they are singular examples.
0: Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Visit coindesk.com consensus.
2: All right, so now let's talk a little bit about the media and how the media beyond just Coindesk has dealt with the collapse of FTX. This has been the biggest story in crypto for the entire year, simply because of how important FTX was to the wider world. We haven't seen the crypto contagion spill out into the real economy, but the real economy and politicians and really everyone is focusing on this 30-year-old cargo shorts wearing schlub Who lost billions of dollars of people's money, and not least of which is because it's a really fascinating story about fraud and finance. But for the media, I mean, we're an industry trade publication. We're very focused on the nitty gritty. We have a very detailed and nuanced view of how these things go down. Ben, that's not something that we can necessarily say about the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other mainstream publications in their coverage of FTX.
1: It's been fascinating to watch how the media industry has covered the collapse of FTX, because it gives a lot of insight to how they think about crypto more generally. And I think generally, it's been quite bad because they've fallen into old line narratives of uh, financial collapses. They've described it as a bank run, which isn't quite right, or they described it as a failed hedge fund, or they've said that crypto is now finishing uh, completely, which isn't right either. On the one hand, to describe it as a failed hedge fund doesn't really get at it because it was more than just a series of bad bets made by this flub, as you you call him. It was uh, actual criminal behavior going on. It wasn't a bank run completely because this wasn't a bank. And it isn't the end of crypto, because there's still hundreds of millions of people who are invested in both the assets of crypto and the ideas of crypto. So for The Economist to talk about the end of crypto is frankly ridiculous. I don't think we've quite gotten to the kind of real nuance, as you call it, Danny, of this story, because it's complex and difficult to understand. And it's probably going to take many years to really wrap our heads around it. So Cameron, uh, let me throw it over to you. What do you think?
3: I agree with a lot of what you said. I think that It's really hard to understand how multifaceted the story is. And I think that that's where a lot of these discrepancies are coming in, you know, calling it a failed hedge fund or a bank run. You know, you have FTX, you have Alameda, you have the condo in the Bahamas. There are so many parts to this FTX story. And I think that being able to explain it all in, you know, one piece or two pieces is very difficult. And that's where a lot of these discrepancies are coming in.
2: Yeah, so I think what's happening is the mainstream media that's not so familiar with these complex concepts, what happens is they come in, they find one idea that makes sense to them, and they latch onto that as if it's the truth. So with the bank run, well, there's a very important element of this story that involved a bank run, but that's not the whole story, and it's not the reason why FTX failed. It's the reason why FTX was proven to be a fraud, but it's not why they failed. There are parts of it that it was a failed hedge fund, but being a failed hedge fund was only one part of it. I was watching a Tucker Carlson for Reasons Beyond Me a couple nights ago, and the big story that Tucker was talking about was how SBF was like living in this sex condo in the Bahamas. Now, you know, you might be able to extrapolate some elements of that from Coindesk's own coverage. As we've reported, the uh, cabal at the top of FTX did have romantic relationships with one another at various points in time but just to call the leadership part of some like sex cult in the Bahamas is stretching this well beyond the truth. But that's what the media does when the media doesn't have an ability to tell the whole story. They grab onto what's the most alluring aspects of it, and they pronounce that to be the whole story. And we shouldn't pretend like we are not immune from that ourselves as we are part of the media. But I do think that this story has shown the crypto media to be in a much better position to take on these issues than the mainstream media, simply because we've understood these characters and we understand these concepts
1: a lot better. There's a way in which the media falls back into established narratives and archetypes. And there's an archetype here about crypto being dodgy. And I told you so. Basically, you couldn't trust crypto to start with. And here is evidence of that.
3: Yeah, a lot of people also who were familiar with SPF or at least knew what he looked like or had some sense, okay, I know he's in crypto, and criticizing his effective altruism, criticizing how he sweet-talked the media, how he was this big figure in Congress and trying to get crypto regulation established. I think that there were a lot of points or a lot of angles looking specifically at him and then sort of taking one of these facets of the fall of FTX.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we can also take some blame in the media for the way in which you covered FTX before we broke the story of uh, what was wrong with FTX because we did definitely lionize this guy. He was the golden boy of crypto, the poster child that we all generally liked because he was this floppy haired unassuming, not typical CEO type. And uh, he was perfect for what we needed from a crypto superstar. And that's why he graced the front cover of Fortune and the front cover of Forbes and the front cover, if we had one, of CoinDesk because he, he suited our our business needs. I think we should be honest about that. So, you know, we're not immune from criticism ourselves.
2: And he remains, SPF remains a headliner for sure. This week, it's a little bit after we're recording, but before this episode goes live, Sam Bankman-Fried is scheduled to headline the New York Times Dealbook Conference, a, a booking that was made before his fall from grace, but he is continuing forward with it. And that brings into consideration for ourselves a really important question about who to give a platform because we ourselves are in the conference business and so Ben if you had an opportunity to bring Sam Bankman-Fried on stage
1: at Consensus would you let him do it and under what preconditions would you I absolutely would have SBF uh, on the stage at Consensus but you know you couldn't have some kind of deal with him where he couldn't talk about the downfall of FTX that would be negligent You know, you couldn't allow him to do some kind of apology tour where he didn't speak the truth and really answer proper questions that he needs to answer. And that's been sort of the issue that we've seen with the New York
2: Times coverage specifically. There's been a lot of umbrage in the crypto Twitterverse about some stories that the New York Times has put out that sort of presented SBF in in what
1: people have described as non-critical terms. Yeah, I mean, the notorious New York Times interview you're talking about the first paragraph of that story talked about the losses that SBF himself had the misfortune to, to have in this debacle, which seems ridiculous given the pain that he exerted across the thousands and thousands of other creditors who fared much worse than he does.
3: Absolutely. And I think that's something to consider if he was brought up on stage, how so many people he impacted, not just companies, but individuals, other employees, who knows by April what we might see, what other companies might fall, what other people might speak out.
1: Just going back to the idea of the media falling into pre-prescribed narratives, uh, you know, obviously one of those narratives is of the poster child, the golden boy, which SBF definitely embodied. The other narrative is of the downfall of the hebristic enterprise, and definitely that was SBF and FTX. But the third narrative I think that we're seeing a little bit of already is the comeback. Everyone loves a comeback, and media companies tend to Love the story of the fallen idol who makes a comeback at some point. I will bet you guys a billion FTT that uh, SBF makes a comeback at some stage with some glowing profile in a magazine like Fortune or or Forbes, and it'll be the comeback king or something they'll put on the front cover, because it just suits the media's relationship with these stories. What do you think, guys? 100%. I mean, this is reminding me most specifically of
2: long-term capital management a highly leveraged hedge fund that blew up in 1998 because all of its bets went bad. Despite the bad reputation that surrounded its founder, John Merriweather, he later returned to start a different hedge fund. It wasn't nearly as momentarily successful as long-term capital management. But despite almost crashing the real-world economy, he continued to pace and tried to revive his reputation. And I see no reason why in a couple of months or a couple of years, more likely, SBF won't try to do the same.
3: Absolutely. Well, Danny, can you speak a little bit about how that reputation revival went?
2: Well, it's a little different because the world of highly leveraged bond trading is not one where you need to go on CNBC all the time and proselytize yourself. You, he just went off back to his investors and said, look, I blew up, give me more money and I won't blow up this time. And some people did. And, you know, a lot of people out there have a lot of money. And you're, if you look hard enough, you'll always be able to, to shake some money out of them. So I don't know if SBF will be able to do the same in the same way, if he is going to be able to just relaunch a new crypto exchange. That seems very unlikely to me. But I don't think that this is the last we've heard of him, unless this actually ends with him behind bars.
1: I think it's worth saying that SPF has treated this crisis differently to other failed founders. I mean, he's very he's been very much front and center on Twitter. He's been giving interviews to publications like the New York Times. He's generally being there to offer commentary on his own downfall. And that's very unusual in these situations. I mean, normally these people are told to shut up by their lawyers, and they do shut up. And we don't hear from them in uh, for a few months. And then there's some carefully choreographed comeback tour that they make at some When some safe period of time has elapsed. But that's not happened in this case. SBF has been there through it all uh, on Twitter and in other media, uh, very much tabulating his own downfall. And there'll be a lot of commentators, including at Coindesk, who've talked about how stupid that is that he could be laying a trap of uh, legal jeopardy for himself. But I happen to think that it's not such a stupid strategy because he is definitely reframing the narrative as we speak. And I think you can see a clear. Impact in that, in in, in some of the coverage of what happened, uh, in the way in which people talk about a failed hedge fund. When this wasn't a failed hedge fund, this was almost definitely criminal behavior in the commingling of funds at uh, FTX and Alameda, in, in a way that he clearly went against his own terms of service for the company, and clearly in some of the other self dealing that they were making between insiders and this balance sheet that had a series of unexplained related party transactions. So I happen to think that SPF has been doing uh, a not perfect media job, but I think in this case, maybe he's benefiting from the way in which he's engaging with his story rather than uh, trying to ignore the media.
3: I agree. And I think that back to what we were talking about earlier with different outlets, misunderstanding or having discrepancies across different articles about the entire collapse, I think that him being open to giving interviews and still being in the public, going on Twitter, posting about updates. Yes, it is strange. It's different. It's something that we haven't really seen. And, you know, it's likely that a lawyer might be behind the scenes soon telling him to shut up. But if we're thinking about how we want to clear up these discrepancies, and understand, okay, what is actually happening? What's falling next? What is a part of this contagion that we need to clarify in order to actually understand what is happening? then it is important. And I do think that it is good that he is being able to be available and speak on some of these and make himself more available to address the concerns that are going to follow in the coming months.
2: I think you're both completely wrong. All right, here's why. First off, I agree. I really enjoy that he's out there talking. It's very entertaining. Uh, I had a great line. Icarus keeps live tweeting his fall from the firmament. I will never write something as beautiful again in my life. A second point, his lawyers did tell him to shut up. He didn't shut up and then his lawyers fired him. So now he has new lawyers who might be advising this, but we're not quite sure. Third point, I think we can judge the efficacy of his attempts to revive his image by understanding how people who know the least about crypto feel about him. I think everyone in crypto who really knows what this situation is and what's going on with it, their minds are already made up. And apart from the entertainment value, they're not going to be swayed one way or the other from his weird... What happened, Twitter tweets, or whatever. Doesn't make sense to me. But one time I was, a couple weeks ago, I was in an airport buying a magazine with SPF's face on the cover, and the 70 year old cashier looked at it and said to me, Oh, that's that 30 year old who killed crypto. I'm really glad I never put my money in it. She knows nothing about cryptocurrency, but she's heard the most important part of this story, which is that this fraudster has crashed this entire economy of funny money. And it won't matter how much SBF tweets or doesn't tweets because she's already made up her mind and she's not wrong in that assessment.
1: Yeah, it's definitely going to impact the mainstream view of, of crypto and coming after a series of market collapses, particularly in the NFT market, which is, you know, was also a big kind of mainstream moment. It's definitely going to hurt the industry for years to come. I just want to pick up on something that Danny was saying, that this idea that SBF is making authentic, off-the-cuff tweets, uh, and he's going against his lawyers and going against his PR handlers. I think that's possibly true, but it's also maybe a bit like when people kind of mess up their hair to look like, um, you know, authentic people who, who just got out of bed. And, and it's just sort of a, a bit of an act. It's like saying, I'm, I'm one of you, and uh, you, I'm approachable and relatable in a way that other more canned people are not. Uh, and I think it's a bit of an act, you know, so I think we should be a little careful about sort of saying that he's speaking so spontaneously. Oh, I know.
2: And I'm, I'm saying, I think that SVF's whole persona was that. And I think that it might still be the case now that his public statements are him trying to look authentic when really being very calculated in his moves. I will say, though, that if anything, this strategy is being driven by ego and not by outside advisors, because he ha- he did lose his first set of lawyers over his strategy. He has fired his PR people, at least the ones that we're familiar with, probably because he couldn't afford to pay them anymore. Also, maybe because they didn't do a very good job of keeping his reputation so yeah. clean. But he's now in uncharted territory for himself, and I think that his own sense of grandiosity And his own idea that he can reshape the world is driving him to continue to put out these statements in the hopes that he can present himself as authentic, even when everyone else has lost their faith in him.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a guy that was trying to be relatable and, uh, you know, I just got out of bed with my funny hair type guy, while at the same time spending millions and millions of dollars on influence operations in Washington, D.C he was making sizable investments or bets in media companies, presumably because he wanted to influence those media companies. I mean, generally, people make investments in media companies for influence rather than for profit. I hate to tell the investors out there, that, but that's probably true. And so I think, you know, there's clear evidence of a calculated mind at work here. So I think we should just park all this kind of authentic guide persona because it's kind of bullshit. All
2: right. So Ben, looking out on this landscape that we've seen, how are you going to change your
1: mindset about reporting on crypto, if at all? Well, I think the, the fever is definitely lifted here. I think we're all going to be a much more on our toes about what's going on in this industry and uh, second guessing what we're being told by these totemic people. And I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny and uh, looking under the hood going forward.
3: Definitely agree with that. I think, like Ben said, really looking into these figures and these people who have such an influence in the crypto space and being a lot more critical of their approach. You know, if they seem like a great person, they might not be. So it's important to keep that in mind.
1: I mean, I think it's very interesting. Uh, You know, the whole point of crypto was to have code be at the basis of trust rather than people being at the basis of trust. And you can see in this whole SBF uh, FTX debacle, the lionizing of an individual to be this kind of king-like figure. And I think, you know, that's always a mistake in any industry or in any environment. And it's a particularly shameful thing in crypto, which is supposed to be about, you know, taking power out of the hands of people you can't trust because they always let you down. And here we are trusting a guy who let us down. So I think we need to return to that ethos of self-reliance, of doing your own research, of depending on code and systems and, dare I say it, regulatory oversight rather than thinking that we can trust 30-year-old guys with funny hats who change the world and and really to be different, because they're not different.
2: Yeah, I think that the big takeaway, the final takeaway, really should be one that everyone in the media who interacted with SPF while knowing what he was doing during their interviews should have realized, if you're interviewing a guy who's playing League of Legends while he's also speaking with you, you probably shouldn't trust him. I think we just make that blanket statement right there.
1: What's wrong with uh, the
2: League of Legends? Well, first off, there's a lot wrong with his League of Legends. That's point number one. Point number two is, if you're interviewing someone, you have to really hope that they are giving you their full undivided attention. And if they're not, and instead playing a freaking video game while they're speaking to you, that should be a red flag. Well, there you have it. The League
1: of Legends uh, test from Danny Nelson. There you go. Okay, so rolling out soon at Coindesk is something we call most influential. This is a list or selection of people we think defined the year in crypto and what a year it has been. So, as well as the recent scandals and blow ups at companies like FTX, we also had a big bull run market at the beginning of the year. So, it's an interesting package this year full of ups and downs. So, this is a package of 50 profile stories of people who defined the year in crypto plus an NFT drop of the top 10 that we've commissioned from leading crypto artists. This is the eighth year that we've done Most Influential, and every year it's a matter of fierce debate as to who should be on that list. And I'm sure this year will be no different. We have a lot of controversial choices on there, selected by reporters and editors at Coindesk. So I'm not going to give any names away on the list. Danny, uh, who do you think should be on the list this year, and who should definitely not be on the list this year? I think that the person who should be on this list this
2: year is one that no one's remembered, but everyone used to be thinking about, and that is Michael Patron, a.k.a. Sifu. Now, Michael Patron was one of the uh, original founders of Quadriga, that's right, of the Quadriga Exchange. Last year's scandal. With, uh, well, not even just last year's schedule, many years ago's scandal. Quadriga was a crypto exchange whose founder died and ran off with people's money. But did he die, Danny? Well, r- whether or not he died, it, it, he did actually embezzle people's funds before. So Michael Patron was a co-founder of that exchange. He stepped away, and then he made a reappearance as this character, Sifu, in the Wonderland Time DeFi project. When an uh, on-chain discovered this, there was an uproar in the DeFi community. Sifu was kicked out, and he responded by creating his own cryptocurrency called Sifu Vision and resuscitating his besmirched image, and in fact, even corralling votes to give himself money out of Wonderland's treasury. So I I think that you can draw a lot of conclusions about everything that happens in crypto from this one uh, shady individual. And therefore, he's on my
1: list of most influential for the year. So Cam, what are the big themes you think we should be covering the list this year?
3: Oh, bankruptcy? (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Kidding. But it's hard to not look back at this past year and just think about how grim it's been. But... That being said, I think that in this time of crypto winter setting on and this bear market, I think that there are a lot of sentiments of builders and a time of changing sentiments about products in the space and different technologies. I mean, we've seen NFTs take a little bit of a shift. We've seen a lot more startups and people really taking advantage of building in the bear market. I think that exchanges and custody And doxing creators, trying to understand security within these different protocols. Some of the things that we should think about, these are all themes that have really come to light in the past several months.
1: Yeah, we've really tried to avoid recency bias in this list. So obviously, everyone's focused now on FTX and some of the other scandals. But there was a lot of positive movements and trends and shifts in, in the industry this year. And it's interesting that when we had our consensus festival in June, that was really an inflection point when everything changed. I mean, up, up until the middle of June, the story of crypto was largely a buoyancy of things going up and momentum and you know, mainstream adoption. It's only really been in the last few months that the whole narrative around crypto has changed. So uh, the list is hopefully a reflective of what we say in soccer commentary as a game of two halves, i.e. there was a positive half of the year and a negative half of the year, and both those things will be represented. So most influential 2022, our list of the people who defined the year in crypto will be coming out this year on December the 5th. That's next Monday at 8 a.m. So stay tuned for that. Thanks very much.
3: All right, guys, this is the last segment of the show. Cam's Corner, we're just going to be talking about what we've been up to, what we do at Coindesk, what our day to days look like and things that we've been interested in lately. So, I have a fun one. Yeah? There was a a virtual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, like, in the metaverse, and 90,000 people went to it. Really? I don't know. It was on Twitter. Yeah.
2: Which metaverse?
3: On cyber.
1: What the hell is that?
3: A metaverse. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) One One of the crypto metaverses, yeah.
1: So, why the hell would you go to the metaverse rather than just going to NBC or CBS or whatever it was on?
3: Because, let's say, you're watching it from the TV. You're only getting that one camera perspective or that multiple camera perspective. You can walk around, you can explore it. From what I understand, it's a lot more of an immersive experience rather than just watching it on TV. You know, you have autonomy. And that's something that people are definitely into. That's something that is a big part of a lot of these metaverses and why people are interacting with them. Would you do it?
1: I think that sounds great. I mean, personally, I find the whole thing fairly insufferable. I mean, they have a bunch of... uh... (laughs) Musicians that I don't particularly like, so kind of seeing them in any medium uh, is is kind of annoying. But to see it in some janky metaverse is especially annoying.
2: Yeah, I think this is taking a bad thing and making it worse. So kudos in that regard.
3: <laughs> All right, yeah, I'll I'll be watching the parade from the metaverse. It's chill. You guys can you guys can go do it in real life. You can watch it on TV. You know where to find me.
2: Ninety thousand people.
3: Ninety thousand people.
1: I don't believe that. 90,000
3: people. 90,000 people.
1: Well, that's a pretty good number for the metaverse, because normally there's nobody in there. That's like 300% of all of the people in the metaverse, at least. Exactly.
3: Exactly. It is a large, a large number for metaverse attendants. Well, depending on how you define user, that's a whole nother can of worms.
2: I could say that after some research, I've discovered that the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade had to pause its NFT mint due to bot minting exploits. Oh. Which I think is funny.
3: There you go. Knew it was too good to be true.
2: Yep. (laughs) There's only 9,000 in the Discord, so everything's bullshit. (laughs) Just remember, guys, everything's bullshit.
3: Oh my gosh. Thanks so much, Ben and Danny. That is a wrap on our first episode of Carpe Consensus. I'm Cam Thompson, and make sure you're tuning in next week.
2: Goodbye. Good luck.
0: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.